Welcome back to WVU Reads. We are continuing to chart our course through this year's Campus Read, Educated, a Memoir by Tara Westover, and the book continues to yield insights. Last week, Lynn Stahl and I had, I thought, a great conversation about some of the book's limitations and blindnesses. This week, I've invited Dr. Crystal Smith from the Equine Studies program onto the show to talk to us about horses. Westover writes beautifully about horses. There is the herd of wild horses that live on Buck's Peak. All of them, it seems, descended from a few horses that her grandfather had set loose when he quit farming. She calls these wild horses pitiless, powerful avatars from another world. There is also a domesticated horse, a gelding. Westover names him Bud. Of this horse, Westover writes after her brother Sean puts a saddle on him for the first time, quote, he had accepted the world as it was, in which he was an owned thing. He had never been feral, so he could not hear the maddening call of that other world on the mountain, in which he could not be owned, could not be ridden. Uh, I have to admit, I find the idea of wildness very seductive. That probably has something to do with all the Thoreau I've read. I've read Walden three times, and, sidebar, the best way to read it is one page each day. I did that one year when I was living in Concord, Massachusetts, which is where the pond is. And at that pace, the book really came alive. But you've probably seen the bumper stickers quoting Thoreau, All good things are wild and free, or In wildness is the preservation of the world. Those are both from his essay, Walking. In Walden, he describes seeing a woodchuck steal across his path one night and feeling tempted to, quote, seize and devour him raw, not for the meat on its body, but for the wildness contained with it. But I also know that our ideas about wildness and wilderness, like our ideas about most things, are problematic. That these ideas grow out of our own ignorance about the natural world, itself a vexed term. And historically, at least, play on racialized and racist ideas. There's a long, shoddy history in American life of associating wildness in different ways with black and indigenous peoples. This has been done to other them to suggest that they were not fully human and so didn't deserve the same rights or treatment as white people, and to justify subjugation, relocation, even genocide. And Westover's book, written well into the 21st century, plays on some of these myths, at least a little bit, There's the passage that Lynn read last week when, following her father, Tara Westover refers to Buck's Peak as the, quote, Indian princess, and relates his stories of the nomadic Indians who, quote, watched for her appearance as a sign of spring, end quote. Buried in these descriptions of the mountain is a history of displacement from the land and into myth. Later in the book, we hear about Tara's grandmother, who spends the winters in Arizona, and the family goes down to visit her, and we hear from this grandmother about the Apaches in Arizona, who fought the U.S. cavalry and were slaughtered. Westover writes, quote, unwilling to suffer a humiliating defeat, cut down one by one as they tried to break through the cavalry, they mounted their horses and charged off the face of the mountain, end quote. The black rocks that Tara and her grandmother find in the desert are called Apache Tears, They are the tears of the women whose men died in that fight. Now, nowhere in anyone's accounting are the Westovers affiliated or even descended from these American soldiers. If anything, Westover's family, her father in particular, 
seems to identify with the indigenous former inhabitants of the land, since he too is at war with the U.S. government. So I find myself sort of trying to keep both of these ideas in my head, trying and failing to do so. But I think that's what reading and conversation are about. If, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard some of the ways this book asks us, almost despite itself, to look hard at ourselves and our lives, and especially the ideas and the assumptions that we use to make sense of the world. I think Lynn put it so well last week when she flipped that well-worn phrase, there's no accounting for taste, on its head. She said that actually the most important thing we can do is to account for our taste, to examine it, and to question it. And in, in a kind of capsule version, that's what I'm trying to do here with wildness. And it's Tara's horses that get me there, and to that uh, idea that I'm, I'm grappling with, and, and the ways that that idea of wildness, which is problematic and is also seductive, continues to play a role in my own sense of myself and of the world in which I live. Shall we get to horses? Let's go to those horses. Crystal Smith is here. She's from the Equine Studies Program uh, on campus. Dr. Smith is a teaching associate professor in the Division of Animal and Nutritional Sciences within the Davis College of Agriculture, Natural Resources, and Design. She was raised on a horse farm in Pennsylvania, where she showed horses to multiple national championships as a youth. At WVU, Dr. Smith leads the Equine Studies minor and manages the horse unit at the J.W. Ruby Research Farm. Dr. Smith, welcome to WVU Reads. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to have you here in the studio. Before we get into the book, maybe you could just tell us about the Equine Studies Program. Sure. So the Equine Studies Program at WVU is an equine studies minor, and our whole goal is to prepare students for careers in the equine industry. So we break up our minor between lecture and hands-on courses, both on campus and at our university farm in Reedsville, West Virginia. And the students will specialize in e either careers in equine management, careers in equine science, or careers in equine-assisted activities and therapies. So what are those three differences? Would you just tell us about that? So you mentioned equine management, and then what was the second one? Equine science. Equine science and equine therapy. Yes. So the differences are just where those career paths are going to take them. Mm -hmm. So everybody will have a set of required courses that all students in the minor will take, and then the rest of their courses are flexible based on career track. So students that would graduate specializing in equine management are typically going to go into more hands-on careers in the industry. Mm -hmm. So careers on thoroughbred racing farms, careers in marketing and sales, maybe careers in extension or academia. Equine science specialized students typically are our pre-veterinary medicine students that are going to go on to veterinary school. Mm -hmm. And then equine-assisted activities and therapy students are typically students outside of the Davis College. So they may be pursuing a clinical degree like preoccupational therapy, pre-physical therapy, psychology, and they want to go on and use horses as a therapy modality after mm -hmm. graduation to complement their clinical work. Oh, okay. I actually have a student right now in English 102 who is writing a, a paper about equine therapy for autism. Yes. Very, yeah. very important work in that field. Mm. So we partner with On Eagle's Wings Therapeutic Horsemanship Center in Fairmont to offer that section of our minor, mm -hmm. and the students will actually go out and get volunteer hours in the field doing equine-assisted therapy mm -hmm. work there. That's so cool. Um, one of the things that I love about this university, having gone to a small liberal arts college, is just how many 
different kinds of programs there are and the different kinds of work that people are doing on campus. And, and the idea of this show is to sort of bring a lot of different people together from different parts of campus around a book and to, and to talk about a book. So again, I'm glad to have you and, and to talk with you about Educated and, and the way that Westover portrays her relationship to horses. Now, before we get to that, I'm hoping you tell us a little bit about how you got into this work in the first place. Sure. So I was kind of born on the back of a horse. So my mother was an equine professional and, you know, was riding when I was in the womb. And then shortly afterwards, Mm -hmm. my mom actually had a boarding lesson and training barn when I was growing up. And then she also managed a standard red racing barn. And we helped manage broodmares and yearling horses that were preparing to go on then for sales. So my background in the horse industry is very diverse. So I've got kind of the racing subset covered and then also just performance horses. And then we grew up showing horses all over the country. So I was able to travel and compete with horses. Just so we can kind of imagine this scene, how many, how many horses between those? So between all of those things. So at home, we ha- would have anywhere from 15 to 20 horses at any one time, mm-hmm. just a combination of boarded horses, training horses, lesson horses, and then what I was personally showing and prepping. The race industry barns tend to be fairly large. Okay. So um, at a racing barn, you might have 40 to 80 broodmares that are having babies, and then those babies are being retained into their first year of life, and then we start preparing them to be sold and then mm-hmm. hopefully go on to a racing career. So that farm was very large. It was in our hometown, and okay. so my day was very busy. Like yeah. <laughs> We would get up in the morning, uh-huh. you know, do barn work before school, I'd go to school, I'd come home, ride my own horses or get dropped off at the race barn, Mm -hmm. work with mom until we were done and then come home and ride afterwards. So it was basically school and then horses all the time. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) and when you say barn work, what does that involve? Oh, everything. So (laughs) horses are super high maintenance. Uh So very individualized care with horses, um, very different from traditional livestock where we tend to treat them as a herd or as one unit. Uh So, you know, it could be everything from bringing horses in from turnout, feeding in the morning, cleaning stalls, exercising horses, you know, Mm -hmm. turning them back out on pasture and Mm -hmm. getting ready to do it all over again. Yeah, that's a, a very useful distinction. I never thought about that that there are herd animals and horses are not herd animals. So they are herd animals by nature, um, but the way that we care for them is very individualized. So, you know, horses have individual nutrient requirements. So we Mm. feed them as individuals. We kind of care for them as individuals. Mm -hmm. But that herd instinct that she references in the book is still very ingrained. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And they have personalities, Yes, I would say so. So distinct personalities. Yeah, very different. Um, there's, you know, generalities that people will make about different breeds of horses or types oh, okay. of horses or sexes of horses. And everybody kind of has their preference. But definitely they have individual personalities and they feed off of the human interaction. So, yeah. you know, not every horse is going to pair up with every person very well. I see. Uh-huh. And that relationship is so fascinating to me. And one of the things I'm hoping we'll talk about with the book is sort of the human equine relationship. Yeah. And, and it's really, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. It's really up to the human okay. um, to develop the horsemanship skills to be able to handle and manage and bring out the best in every horse that they run into mm-hmm. contact with. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have a horses of your own or, or relationships with particular horses as I, a kid? I did. So I had a couple horses throughout my youth that were sort of my main 
project horse or my main show horse that I formed, you know, very deep connections mm-hmm. with. Um, and then even in our WVU barn, I mean, my job is obviously to manage all the horses in our care. If you asked my students, I'm sure they would tell you that I have favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, we care for them all the same and we love, love them all the same. But there's <laughs> Just like definitely one yeah, that you form bonds with. Yeah. Yeah, and that has to do with just sort of something about your temperament and the horse's temperament. Yeah, something about being that. Being in alignment. Yeah, it might be the temperament being in alignment. It might be what that horse brings to the program. Mm-hmm. So I have a horse in my WV barn, for instance, that is such an amazing teaching horse because hmm. when a student finally gets it and kind of does everything right, this horse is 100% right as well. And hmm. so it's a really clear connection that that student gets that they've done the right thing. The light bulb moment has happened. Everything feels a hundred percent right because he's just so true to what he's being asked to do. Yeah. And so from a teaching perspective, he's probably one of my favorite teaching horses because when the student gets it, it's so apparent in the hmm. way that he responds and it's like a, ma- a monster light bulb moment for them. Wow. So, so from, interesting. yeah, from that perspective, he's definitely one of my favorites. Uh-huh. To teach off of. Uh-huh. Well, let's let's maybe go into Westover's book a little bit. Okay. Uh, and I thought we could start because because we were we were we were talking about how horses are herd animals, but they they're raised in such a way that that they get individualized attention. Mm-hmm. And so so in chapter eleven, which is uh, where Tara Westover talks sort of most about horses, and the the, the chapter is really organized around horses. She uh, kind of distinguishes between these wild horses. This herd of wild horses on the mountain, and then a domesticated horse. Mm-hmm. But but I wanted just to start with the wild horses, and I would just love to hear your reaction to the ways that she describes them. Because to me, as someone who's totally ignorant about horses, it's a very compelling. But I'm really curious if you think it's if it's accurate. But let me read just a little bit of it. So. Tara West over here is, is describing a herd of wild horses that live on Bucks Peak, the mountain where she grows up. She talks about how her father had had been a farmer and he sort of let a few of his horses go when he decided to quit farming. And she says, quote, they multiplied. And by the time I was born, there was a whole herd of wild horses on the mountain. And this is how she describes them. Feral horses don't yield easily, not even to a man like Grandpa. My brothers and I would spend days, even weeks, earning the horse's trust, just so we could touch it. Then we would stroke its long face and gradually, over more weeks, work our hands around its wide neck and down its muscular body. After a month of this, we'd bring out the saddle, and the horse would toss its head suddenly and with such violence that the halter would snap or the rope break. Once, a large copper stallion busted the corral fence, smashed through it as if it weren't there, and came out the other side, bloody and bruised. She goes on a paragraph later to say, We never triumphed in breaking the horses. Our strength of will faltered long before theirs. We got some so they wouldn't buck when they saw the saddle, and a few who'd tolerate a human on their back for jaunts around the corral. But not even Grandpa dare ride them on the mountain. Their natures hadn't changed. They were pitiless powerful avatars from another world. To mount them was to surrender your footing, to move into their domain, to risk being borne away. So again, I find that to be a very compelling portrayal, not only of, of horses and the, the sort of this dance 
between the horses and the people, but of wildness generally. Um, but I also know that writers are prone to exaggerate, <laughs> to make a point. And this is this chapter is certainly about her brother, Sean, I think as much as it is about horses. But I just love to hear your response to that passage. Yeah, so she talks pretty clearly about wild horses and how, you know, when left to their own devices or when untouched, you know, they do just sort of maintain that herd mentality and sort of their instinctual innate behaviors that they're born with. And that's definitely still true to form. So Mm -hmm. if you went out to a wild horse herd in the Western states, those animals are untouched, um, you know, managed, but untouched. And so until somebody comes in and engages with them, spends the time with them in an appropriate manner, they're going to revert back to that herd mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so innate in horses. Even in a domesticated horse situation, when they're turned out in pasture, they still mentally are a part of their herd. Hmm. So our horses that get turned out together... They graze together at a set period of time. They go to the water together at a set period of time. They still very much, when turned out, will reflect back on that herd mentality and operate as a group and Mm -hmm. provide each other with safety in numbers. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise that those horses that have been turned out and just kind of left go have reverted back to that mentality. Mm -hmm. And then until somebody interacts with them in a positive way, it's going to be very hard to break that cycle. Yeah. And I'm curious about that interaction because particularly the way she describes earning the horse's trust. Mm -hmm. I thought that word was kind of interesting, trust. Is that... Is that how you think of it? I think that's appropriate. Yeah. It's very much about the relationship that you form with the horse. So... You have to present yourself as a leader that a horse wants to follow, Mm -hmm. whether that's a wild horse that's trying to be gentled and trained for the first time or a domesticated horse that knows his job perfectly, Mm -hmm. but is waiting to figure out if the human that's in contact with him is worthy of really following. Uh So... Yeah, trust is definitely the appropriate term. You've got to present yourself as a confident leader and Mm -hmm. interact with that horse in a positive way so that you're a person that he wants to follow. Yeah. So would is that a relationship of like domination that the trust has to because you said to follow the yeah it's not cues of the rider. Yeah, not a relationship of domination, just a relationship of mutual respect. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh And so that the, the the horse has to understand itself in a way as being respected right. by the rider, as being, well as respecting the right. rider. And everything that we do with training horses is about earning that respect. It's amazing that we can convince a thousand pound animal to do all of the things that we ask them to do. Yeah. Um, you know, any horse could decide that today's not the day that right. they're going to, you know, be ridden, get on right. the horse trailer, do whatever it is that we're asking them to do. But hopefully they've been trained in a very systematic and positive way. Mm-hmm. So that they've just decided, you know, that the better choice and the better option is to follow this person that's really worthy of their yeah. respect. Yeah. So that it sounds like they have will, strong wills. Yes. Uh, as well as strong bodies. Yes. I think they're, you know, very strong-willed um, animals, very strong-bodied individuals. And so definitely takes horsemanship skills on our part mm-hmm. to convince them mm-hmm. and to maintain a relationship with them where they want to be a part of us yeah. and be a part of our life. So would you say, I'm thinking a lot about my dog, mm-hmm. you know, because it seems it's the closest, most analogous relationship I have. Um, although my dog, we had to put my dog down uh, about a month ago. But um, in terms of 
living with a creature, mm-hmm. working with a creature, and training a creature out of its wildness. And I think horses are a lot closer to that wildness, I yes. imagine, than yes. dogs are. Um, but, you know, we think about the way that we think about dogs is that they really appreciate the training and that they've kind of been, they've evolved such that they want, you know, they, they want a strong hand mm-hmm. from the, the master. Do horses appreciate the work? Like when they, they, they want to go out and do the work because they've learned that they enjoy that work in some way. Yes, absolutely. Not because they feel like they have to do it. Absolutely. So I 100% believe that if, you know, we trained horses in a way where they thought they had to do something, yeah. um, you know, they would very much be forming a negative relationship with their people and with the job and with all of that with all of that stuff. Yeah. Horses definitely, you know, if if trained in a positive way, develop a work ethic and enjoy, you know, having confidence and knowing what it is that we're asking them to do and that we're always asking them in the same way and yeah. that that, you know, same result is going to yield the same level of praise or the same level of reward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you take you know, a racehorse or a competitive horse, you know, we can't make a horse run fast around a race course. Right. They have to want to do that. And there's plenty of thoroughbred racehorses that decide that they don't, you know, maybe they just aren't bred to run, don't have it hmm. in them, don't want to do it. So they go on to do something else. Oh, okay. Same thing with other performance horses. There's ranching horses that innately have a ton of cow sense and they want to work cattle and they yeah. want to track cattle and want to do that job. And there's stuff that you can train them to do, you yeah. know, and in, increase their ability to want to do it. But at the end of the day, if they don't have it in them, yeah, they're just not going to perform the job. Yeah. Huh. That's so interesting. I, I I said that the only analogy I had was my dog, but I'm thinking about my students yes. also, you know, <laughs> and the way we work with students. And that must be an interesting dynamic out at the farm because you have students and horses and, and sort of each are learning from the others and you're sort of facilitating that process. Yes. And from a teaching perspective, um, you know, it's so important for us to have super confident horses who know their job inside and out, because sometimes we'll have students that are more beginner or more novice that aren't confident and don't know their job. So being able to partner them up with a horse that's very confident and understands what needs to be done allows the student to progress a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if I had a horse that was less experienced, I would partner that horse up with a student that was more experienced and very confident. Let's go back to the book, and and maybe I could ask you to read a little bit of Mm -hmm. it. Um, But after she describes this herd of wild horses, and then she sort of breaks that apart and and talks about her brother, Sean, and and, and I'd love to talk a little bit about Sean and horses and our ideas about wildness. But before we do that, I wanted to look at Bud, who is this gelding that Tara has been given when, when she was young. If I could ask you to read these first couple paragraphs, and we'll talk about them and sort of make our way through this scene. Sure. That evening, Sean saddled a new horse, a copper-coated mare, for the first time. She was ready for a short ride, Sean said, so we mounted, him on a mare, me on bud. We made it about half a mile up the mountain, moving deliberately so as not to frighten the horses, winding our way through the wheat fields. Then I did something foolish. I got too close to the mare. She didn't like having the gelding behind her, and with no warning, she leapt forward, thrusting her weight onto her forelegs, and with her hind legs kicked. Bud full in the chest. Bud went berserk. I'd been tying a knot in my reins to make them more secure and didn't have a firm hold. Bud gave a tremendous jolt, then began to buck, throwing his body in tight circles. The reins flew over his head. 
I gripped the saddle horn and squeezed my thighs together, curving my legs around his bulging belly. Before I could get my bearings, Bud took off at a dead run straight up a ravine, bucking now and then, but running, always running. My foot slipped through the stirrup up to my calf. So this becomes a very quickly becomes a very alarming situation for her. Um, although she has talked about previously the ways in which she's like fallen off a hundred different horses at a hundred different times. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I was curious about that. Like, you know, she is she is accustomed to um, just being thrown from a horse, which I think is probably scary for like a lot of your students. Absolutely. Um, so. Is that just a matter of kind of growing up with horses, do you think? Or do you see students get a little more, a little less afraid of that sort of thing? I think for Westover, it's about how she grew up in her relationship with her horses. Okay. So her relationship with horses would have been very different than my relationship with horses oh, growing so? up. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Westover, they interacted with horses that her, you know, family threw out on the back 40 and kind of forgotten about. And then mm. they brought them back in and tried to, you know, reinstitute some sort of training process. And so I would wager a bargain <laughs> <laughs> that her relationship with horses was way more contentious probably uh-huh. than the relationship that I had with horses that were always handled a certain way, managed a certain way, trained a certain way. Yeah. And I was taught to interact with them a certain way. Yeah. So I think, you know, she, by nature of the way that they grew up with horses, utilized horses and interacted with them, she probably had way more scary encounters right. than what I would have and what I would ever want my students to have. Yeah. So our goal, right, is to never have a situation yeah. where somebody gets into scenario like the scene lays out. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, like so much of her upbringing, it's really pretty haphazard, I guess, her relationship to horses. And dangerous. <laughs> Very. Very. <laughs> so... Definitely doesn't emulate, I guess, what my relationship would have been and what the student's relationship would be. That said, though, they are inherently dangerous by nature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're you're entrusting that a thousand pound animal is going to ignore their herd instincts and their prey mentality Mm -hmm. and just think and quietly do the things that we've asked them to do. And so definitely as horsemen, we always know that, you know, anytime we step foot and set down on the saddle, we're at risk of something going Mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you've managed to train them in a way that you're minimizing your interaction for that. Yeah. And and I guess that I I wonder if that you're making yourself vulnerable. You're sort of at the 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 whims and the 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 mercy. Yeah, exactly. Of the animal. And so you really have to respect it for that reason. Right. Respect the relationship and know that you've done all of the things that you needed to do to prepare that horse to have an ex- a successful yeah. ride or a successful encounter with yeah. you. Good. Well, let, let's keep going through this passage because it is, it is kind of exciting. <laughs> Bud reared, thrusting his head so high I thought he might tumble backward. He landed hard and bucked. I tightened my grip on the horn, making a decision based on another kind of instinct not to surrender my hold. Sean would catch up even on that unbroken mare. He'd pulled off a miracle. The mare wouldn't even understand the command when he shouted, giddy up. At the jab of his boot in her gut, which she'd never felt before, she would rear, twisting wildly. But he would yank her head down, and as soon as her hooves touched the dirt, kick her a second time harder, knowing she would rear again. He would do this until she leapt into a run, then he would drive her forward, welcoming her wild acceleration, somehow guiding her even though she'd not yet learned the strange dance of movements that over time becomes the kind of language between a horse and rider. All this would happen in seconds. 
a year of training reduced to a single desperate moment. So I would love to uh, just to dwell on this a little bit, both because I find it very beautiful and compelling, the way that she depicts her brother uh, on the horse and and the way that she describes it as kind of condensing uh, a year's worth of training into a single desperate moment. Um, But I'm also now suspicious about the ways in which they interact with horses. Um, So... um, is this is this this process, which is to someone who is unaccustomed to horses and to to breaking horses, pretty violent? I mean, he's kicking the horse and bringing its head down, and the horse is pushing back pretty hard. Is that essentially what training looks like, or no? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it should absolutely not look like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in this moment she kind of calls for the desperation of the moment and how he just was in a rush to get this horse forward and try to get up to her. But the training process in horses is so methodical and so linked back to how they innately behave and trying to bring out behaviors that we want them to actually think about and do and kind of make the right decisions. So yeah, the training process from start to finish would never, you know, look yeah. like that. It would be very slow, very methodical. Mm-hmm. We do so many things with horses on the ground to teach them the behaviors that we want them to perform under saddle before we ever put a saddle on their back and set down on them. Mm-hmm. And then when they're ready to be saddled, we'll get on and off them a million times before we sit down and commit to moving forward. Mm-hmm. And then we're moving forward in a methodical way. Yeah. You know, and so everything about how we train a horse to go about doing its job, whatever that job is at the end, is very methodical, very thought out, and reflects back on how they instinctually want want to behave, and then how we can modify those behaviors to have them learn and do all of the things that we can make horses do or convince horses to do. Yeah. It's so helpful to me because hearing you describe that, it makes me understand the way that this is just a sort of another instance of the carelessness and the arrogance of Sean, especially, and Westover's family more generally. Um, and, 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 and her depiction of it to some extent, because this is a heroic moment. I mean, Sean tames this wild creature, these two wild creatures, and he seems to maybe even save Tara's life. And he just does it through sheer strength of will. Right. <laughs> um, and, but actually it's hugely problematic. It is problematic. So even though he sort of, you know, fulfills the mission in the moment, mm-hmm. Right. Long term, the methods that have been used to move this horse forward throughout its training are probably not the type of methods that are going to lead to a confident, strong, well-broke horse Mm -hmm. that's going to be able to go do a variety of things for a variety of people. Mm -hmm. It's bad for the horse. What's happening here? Probably bad for the long term progression, unless after this instance, they've taken, you know, 25 steps back and then rebuilt that process yeah let's finish it up if you don't mind just reading a little bit more but had worked himself into a frenzy he leapt wildly arching his back as he shot upward then tossing his head as he smashed his hooves to the ground my eyes could barely unscramble what they saw golden wheat flew in every direction while the blue sky and the mountain lurched absurdly and then if you wouldn't mind just reading that last paragraph 
I was so disoriented that I felt, rather than Saul, the powerful, penny-toned mare moving into place beside me. Sean lifted his body from the saddle and tilted himself toward the ground, holding his reins tightly in one hand, while the other, he snatched Bud's reins from the weeds. The leather straps pulled taunt, the bit forced Bud's head up and forward. With his head raised, Bud could no longer buck, and he entered a smooth, rhythmic gallop. Sean yanked hard on his own reins, pulling the mare's head toward his knee, forcing her to run in a circle. He pulled her head tighter on every pass, wrapping the strap around his forearm, shrinking the circle until it was so small the pounding hoof stood still. I slid from the saddle and lay in the wheat, the itchy stalks poking through my shirt. Above my head, the horses panted, their bellies swelling and collapsing, their hooves pawing at the dirt. Hmm. I'm struck here uh, by the way in which she ends this scene, laying in the wheat, the itchy stalks poking through my shirt, kind of prone. Um, and it, and if not, if you remember later, there's this scene when she uh, goes to the grocery store with Sean, and he is abusive to her in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and she's kind of in that position again. Uh, and and again, I, I I'm struck as someone who you know, as an English teacher, is always looking at the ways in which characters. Even in a, even a work of nonfiction, are are depicted the ways in which Sean and the horses are kind of put into relationship with each other, and that that the the wildness that's inherent in these horses is kind of inherent in Sean as well, and and I I feel like she sometimes maybe uses that to to let him off the hook to justify yes. to justify exactly. Um, and so that just has me thinking about wildness and some of our ideas or maybe misconceptions about wildness. And I'm just curious if that's something you thought about with this book at all. Yeah, I think for me, the I love a story about someone overcoming their circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so for me, every chapter of this book was intertwined with stories of, you know, wildness, neglect, mm. abuse in some way. And how she changed from sort of justifying it and accepting it to learning that there was a different way. Yeah. Um, And so I think it definitely comes back to every interaction that this family has. It's the way that they interact with the horses. It's the way they interact with their children, the Mm -hmm. people in their really Mm non-community because they've sort of exiled themselves from the rest of society. And so it's just an interesting tale to me of how, you know, raw someone's background can be yeah but you know it's never too late really to to kind of overcome and change the perception yeah and she takes a certain amount of pride in that background as well as obviously suffering from it the 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 long-lasting trauma Mm -hmm. um that it leaves her with um and she has obviously a lot of love and affection for her brother and her father as well as um recognizing that they that sort of, that they have abused her in a lot of different ways and so i feel like what we get in this chapter is a lot of that sort of pride yes and the love and affection and it's harder to see how like you're saying this is one more instance of these deeply problematic ways that the family has of interacting with other creatures. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was there anything else about this chapter or this book that struck you in particular? I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, there is. So in one of the chapters, when she's talking about Sean and this unbroken mare, 
Mm-hmm. Um, she's talking about an interaction that he has throughout that training process. And her line is hysteria in one horse causes hysteria in others, especially in the young and spirited. And of all of the writing in this chapter, that's probably the one that spoke the loudest to me huh. because it's something that we still think about when we interact with horses. It's something we still teach when we're talking about horse behavior. Mm-hmm. So, Again, they are, by nature, prey animals, even though they have really no predators that are preying on them currently. um, They evolved as prey animals. You know, morphologically, they're prey animals, Mm -hmm. eyes set to the outside of their head. Mm. They still instinctively think like they're a prey animal. And so, you know, they tend to move in groups. They tend to emulate the behavior of the rest of the horses in the group. And one of the things that we talk about all the time in equine behavior is how they will revert back to those prey instincts and that herd mentality. And so the mimicry behavior in horses is very strong. And there's Mm. a ton of instances in this when we talk about how horses interact. So if you had a herd of wild horses on the range, you know, you would have a stallion and his band of mares and then those resulting offspring that would all kind of travel as a group. That stallion is there to indicate and kind of watch over his herd as to what is going on. And so he's sort of the indicator of what's happening. If he sees a potential predator move into the area or if he decides that his group needs to move, Mm -hmm. he'll signal to them. And when one horse takes off, the rest of them will follow. Mm -hmm. Same thing still happens in a domesticated situation. So if our horses were turned out in pasture and a deer ran through the field, one horse perked up and saw it and got spooked and would take off, the rest of them would follow whether they saw that deer or recognized that deer or not. Mm -hmm. So if the group goes, we're all going. Hmm. Um, And even when we're riding horses, we think about this all the time. So if you're out on a trail and one horse spooks at something on the trail, it's likely that no matter how well-trained the rest of them are, they're all going to follow. And so that line especially spoke out to me because it's so true in terms of equine behavior. We talk about this all the time. And I wonder how much that plays into human behavior as well. How so? Um, just, you know, kind of group dynamics. And if, you know, if one person elicits a behavior, is it easier for the group to just follow? Yeah. Um, you know, in Westover's family, this was their norm, kind of a cycle of abuse and neglect was their norm. And so for a long time, you know, I just think it it was easy for her to kind of stay in that bubble of, of what her family was like, you know? Yep. And they're they're following the their father's cue. Right. Sort of in the way in which you're describing the stallion and the mares. You were describing what you liked about the book as being this constantly Tara Westover constantly overcoming adversity and moving away this process of education, you know, and moving mm-hmm. away from her family and her environment and sort of into her own life, but but that's also a process of loss. You know, she loses so much, obviously, her family first and foremost, but also the place that she's from. Mm -hmm. And she probably doesn't spend a lot of time with horses Mm -hmm. anymore. And I I, I imagine that feels like a loss, because if you are accustomed to being with these animals, you probably, I don't know, like for you, I imagine that that's a really important part of of your your life Mm -hmm. and, and who you are. And you might maybe would feel a little funny to all of a sudden not be around horses. Yeah, it's absolutely a lifestyle. So, you know, for me, it's been such a part of my upbringing yeah. and, you know, such a part of developing developing me into the person that I am today 
that, I mean, I honestly don't know what I would do if I wasn't yeah. somehow involved in the horse industry or, you know, working with horses every day, laying a hand on a horse every day. It's just very much a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And they are so high maintenance and they are such a 24-7 animal yeah. that it truly is a part of your life. Like there are no days off in the horse world, right? Yeah. Because every day they need to be fed and they need to be managed and they need to be cared for. And so it's definitely not something that I think you can pick up and put down if you yeah. are truly a horseman at heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, hearing you talk about it. I'm very envious, you know, because I have so, so little contact with, uh, other creatures other than human beings and mm -hmm. certainly with anything that's wild or has the sort of wildness in mm -hmm. it like like horses do yeah it's it's very rewarding to you know form a partnership with an animal that you yeah. can you know expect this kind of high level of service out of them that yeah. you know they just learn and they want to please and to do what we've asked them to do and so I mean, it's, it is just, even though I've been in the horse industry for many, many years, and this is a huge part of my life, it's still, you know, amazing to me every day that we can teach horses to do the crazy, incredible things hmm. that we teach them to do, and they'll mm -hmm. just do it willingly. Mm -hmm. I just think it's incredible that we can take this thousand pound animal and teach them to do, I mean, literally anything with yeah. enough time and attention. I could yeah. teach a horse to stand on a 12 inch block on the middle of the arena. <laughs> um, we can literally teach them yeah. to dance. We yeah. can literally teach them to like perform service. There's just so many things that they'll do for us if we've interacted with them in the right yeah. ways. And so I just think they're an incredible animal just by nature yeah. of that. So, right. Is that like a testament to, to human ingenuity or to the generosity of the horse or just about this particular alchemy between horses and human beings, that this particular relationship that's evolved over like a long time. Over obviously. a very long time. Yeah. I think it's, I think it is the interaction. I think yeah. it's the interaction between humans and horses. I think they're incredible animals. And then our horsemanship skills have evolved so dramatically over the course of their domestication that, you know, we're just better at yeah. teaching them, hopefully, what it is that we want them to do. Yeah. And having a positive outcome. Well, this has been fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming in here. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to know that there's this whole other part of campus that that I didn't even know existed. And I hope I can, I hope I can continue to sort of learn about it. If people who are listening want to find out more about the program or visit the farm, um, what should they do? So there's a variety of ways for people to learn about the horse program and what all we have to offer at WVU. So the website is probably the best source of information if you're just looking to find out about the minor, the horses, the farm, the faculty, and other things. And that's just horses.wvu.edu. We also host some public events that are open to anyone to come spectate or come out and visit. And those are great times to come to the farm and learn about the farm if you've not been there before or if you're not there for classes. So there's a calendar of, of events on that website as well that it's linked under the farm tab. So in the summer, we have quite a number of horse shows that'll happen on the weekends that are open to the public. This fall, we have our equestrian team shows that are, again, open to spectators. Um, well, thanks again for coming in here, Dr. Crystal Smith, and uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savan Hunter. Copyright 2019.